0: Rebuilders, today we are heading back to the news. What are we talking about, Mark?
1: We are talking about China protests. Um, We are talking about the World Cup. It's not just going to not going to be really a sports. commentary on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can tune into Daniel's sports podcast. For that. <laughs> um, there is but we're going to talk about what does it mean for global society. We're going to look at Elon Musk takeover of Twitter. We're going to look at the collapse of FTX and what that says about crypto and corruption and and we're going to look really at what are the big trends that all of this is telling us about this tension between the ideology, the world the way that people want the world to be and then governance, the way that the world really is. And we're going to end up with a call to a new period and era of intercession and boldness in the church.
0: It's a great episode. We are looking forward to sharing it with you. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. It's been a while. How are you both?
1: I'm great, thank you. Doing really well. It's nice to be here. I'm good too, yeah. we've done a, I think I've done a bit of travel since... Yeah, I was here last yeah, week to you've... the northern hemisphere for the second time in a few months. Amazing. How was it? Uh, it good. It really mm-hmm. good. It was at the twenty four seven prayer conference um, in Belfast. Spent some time at Gas Street yep. with Tim and Rachel Hughes in Birmingham, and uh, then caught the plane back through the hub that is Qatar ah, airports yes. in Doha. Huh? Huh? And it was mad. Yeah, I can. It was mad. Well, uh, imagine the. Uh, Just say crowd, crowd, crowd. uh, Management could do some work.
0: (laughs) Well, hopefully they figured it out between then and now. I'm not Um, sure. Yeah, yeah, probably not. Um, Yeah, and we'll be coming back to Doha a little bit later in this episode. Any other interesting uh, things that have been happening in our lives?
2: Um, you had your car. I got a motorbike. Yeah, so that, that's the thing. I, yeah, I, yeah. I
0: haven't obtained any new vehicles. No.
1: Just, no. Yeah. No, you got a new car. Was it last year? It's
0: mm, like two years old now. It's
1: hmm. old years. <laughs> My car still has the essence of the new car smell. Ah, yes. Like, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what more do we need to say? Yeah. I'm feeling a bit rusty on the old banter. Sorry, everyone.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Normally we spend hours and hours preparing it. <laughs> Actually, weeds, I, I, weeds. Will, I think before we, our last episode, before you head
2: overseas, you did make a Yeti prediction.
0: Oh, did we talk true. about that
2: post? We oh, haven't talked right. about it yeah, post. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah Any, any Yeti sightings?
0: Um, your wife Trudy showed me a photo of a Yeti at the Cadbury, um, what was it? The Cadbury.
1: Oh, yeah. So we went to the factory Cadbury thing. Factory in Birmingham, which yeah. my kids loved. I mean, it's like a factory. It's like a cross between Willy Wonka and Quaker town planning. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, there was a Yeti in there. So, was, so 100% it came true. Yeah,
0: I'm going to recreate it out of plasticine. Yeah, it was yeah. a horrifying thing.
1: Yeah,
2: Actually,
0: really you and I saw one too, Daniel.
2: Yeah, I think we were at uh, stuff dinner in the city. Was it when we went past some shop or something?
0: It was um, at Fed Square, the Acme. Oh, yeah, oh no, yeah. like, no, it's ice an ice bar. Oh, yeah, yeah, an ice bar. There yeah, was, yeah
2: oh. a Yeti, a real Yeti, a live Yeti. <laughs> yep. standing well, that, that is, I'll, I'll tell
1: that as confirmation. Yeah. Mm.
0: So there we go. The prediction Two came true. Two sightings.
1: Two sightings. Oh, that, that's crazy. Two sightings. <laughs> this one's for you, Jane Goodall.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now that we've got that out of the way, mm. let's get into today's content, which is... Um
1: right, so one prediction, uh, th- oh, okay, I did, because sure. did the government collapsed uh, when I hit the UK just after that. So yes. Liz Truss like, What did went. you do, Mark? Well, can I just say something? Like literally rocked up in the UK, the government collapses. I've got video of me out the front of 10 Downing Street with my boys as like the media's there, which was quite cool. I bombed. we photobombed um, CNN Portugal. <laughs> I got a video of that. Um, and then we arrived in Northern Ireland and again, <laughs> you know, government collapses again. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's me. And then you yep. flew back it's to me. Australia. And if we, we had – well, nothing really happened. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, nothing. <laughs> we had an election in our state, but, yeah, Was, uh, wasn't a government collapse. Yeah.
0: Well, there you go. I mean, so many things that, were, that we talked about yeah. happened. Yetis, governments.
2: I think if anyone's looking to invite Mark – to, to their nation. Just be
1: mm. wary. <laughs> well, no, I think invite me if you want your government to fall. <laughs> I like, don't like your Prime Minister, President, King, Queen. I'm your man. <laughs> I'm your guy. I'll rock up. Uh, just get me out the front of your sort of government building and and um, revolution <laughs> ensures. No, it's, a, it's an implosion, self-implosion. Mm. Uh, Amazing. So a, um, look for, I'm looking forward yeah. to the
0: emails that we will receive, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. the requests that might come through. <clears throat> Today, we are revisiting the news, something we do uh, regularly uh, to have a bit of a, I guess, a a meta insight into what is going on and the trends that you're seeing, Mark, uh, occurring in the world through news events. Mm. Uh, So we're gonna kick off with China. Yeah. uh, And looking at the protests that have been emerging there over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Talk to us about that.
1: Uh, So as we sort of go on this journey, through different things in the news and what's happening in the world, I think the thing I would encourage the listeners is to look for the the big trends, yes, and and the big sort of contours. And again, too, I think we've talked about it before uh, the news cycle is so fast, so much happening. Um, but what are the big trends behind these things? So just to give people some background, so obviously we we had our big October edition. Was that the last one we did? It was like what? that
0: was the last big news one. Okay, it well, was it the follow-up? Yeah, you you two, yeah, you yeah, two did it.
1: Um, We talked about the Chinese um, Communist Party's National Congress, which happened in October, and, um, you know, it was quite controversial um, when there was a part when the former uh, leader of China, Hu Jintao, was led out by obviously to his own displeasure um, in a bit of a like massive power move (laughs) by the current sort of uh, Chinese Premier, uh, Xi Jinping, and, you know, I think that signalled something to the country. Hu Jintao was um, uh, one of the leaders which you know, signalled China's sort of emergence into the global market and its engagement with the West. And to lead him out in that way, um, you know, he felt quite sad for him being left led, left, led out, I think signalled um, some direction in what Xi's sort of strategy is and where China's going. So there was some hope in China that after um, the National Party Congress that this would mean that some of the quite strict um, covid Um, um, policies and they have, I think they call it dynamic clearing, I think what they call it, um, where if it comes into a part of a city, there's, you know, really strict lockdown, you know, to the point where people are sort of locked into their apartment complexes. Mm. Um, But things sort of broke. Now, it's about COVID, it's not about COVID, but the sort of trigger was um, in the capital of Xinjiang, which is the western province, which is, um, you know, mainly populated – well, not mainly, there's been a lot of migration of Han people into that area – um, but you know, is the traditional sort of homeland of the Uyghur people. Mm-hmm. And there was an apartment complex there which was in lockdown under COVID and um, a fire took off. And because of the COVID protocols, it meant they couldn't get to the people, people couldn't get out and a number of people died. And this sort of you know organically um, spread across um, sort of social media platforms and has led to a series of sort of quite sort of seemingly organic protests mm. across the breadth of China. Mm. Um, what's also interesting is, uh, it's not just one group. Often in protests, there might be tra- trade unions or students or whatever, um, but you're actually seeing a variety of protests. Um, so in some areas, it's been around ethnicities, like okay. minorities, like like the Uyghurs. In other areas, it's been students and, and uh, uh, one of the most prestigious sort of universities, which is really a sort of cradle of uh, Chinese thought. There was protests there. Um, you've also had... Um, more, more traditional leftists protesting mm. in certain places uh, in China. You've had women protesting. There's sort of a, a large and growing feminist movement, um, and then just ordinary people protesting as well. Sort of local areas, and I think it's I think it's fascinating for a number of reasons. Number one is that um, it shows you know a lot of the sort of thought around the fact that China's managed to pull off this sort of complete surveillance state where yeah. this stuff is tamped down and narratives can be controlled. So it shows and they've done a lot but it also shows how things can quickly spiral out mm. of control a lot of the Chinese security surveillance state was really built up as a as a sort of insulation against what China saw happening in the Arab Spring in, in 2011 but it shows you that an Arab Spring moment can happen mm. um, you know and I'm not saying they're at that point yet but it shows that these things can spread interestingly too uh, second point would be that Technology moves really quickly. So yes. you can, you know, Chinese builds its own sort of infrastructure around its own sort of internet really. And there's, you know, Weibo and, um, um, you know, they've got all their own sort of sites, but um, which can be heavily controlled by the government. Mm-hmm. But what was happening was apparently was that people using Telegram, which is an encrypted app, so people can still get around um, things with VPNs. And what they were actually doing is, protesters were live streaming their protests, and yeah. they were singing the Internationale, and they were actually talking to people in other cities. So there was this live. So it's very hard to censor things live. When um, the Christchurch uh, massacre happened, um, uh, which was live streamed with a GoPro, it was really difficult for authorities on Twitter and different social media platforms to stop something happening live. Yes, because you're, you know you're catching up, and and in a sense, the, uh, the liveness of these protests um uh, it's a way of almost like broadcasting like a TV station would cross live, you know CNN, I remember you know when the fall of communism CNN was sort of brought you know really came to the fore when it was broadcasting live from Berlin when the mm. war fell. And that was an extremely uh, expensive proposition to pull off. but now any person with a, a smartphone can, you know and an encrypted app can can you know do this. Um, but I think also what it shows is, yes, this is about, um, Oh, sorry. The other technological thing I forgot to say was really, really interesting. And we're going to talk about the World Cup in a second. But apparently another huge catalyst was the fact that, you know, there's been this serious story in China where the credibility and the social contract where people were prepared to go with the government because their COVID zero policies, particularly for sort of, you know, 2020, 2021, seemed to be working because the rest of the world was struggling. You know, you saw particularly the West and yes. Europe and America with you know significant death tolls and, and you know this sort of stuff and, and seemed to be out of control. Where I remember seeing images on social media of Chinese people like, hey, we're in a restaurant and look at this and you know all this sort of stuff happening where um you know they seem to have the system seemed to be working and people went along with it. But obviously the significant vaccination campaigns that happened around the world and particularly mm. mRNA vaccines, you know, which have a high protection against severe disease, the Chinese um, could import uh, those vaccines, but there's a matter of national pride. And it's not just about national pride, it's about China's argument and Xi Jinping's argument that China is the ascended power in the world and that it can do things better. That's what legitimacy is based upon. Mm. And so, you know, Sinovac, the sort of Chinese... Um, Vaccines are still still you know okay, um, but they don't provide the protection. The other issue the Chinese government has is that a significant you know percentage of its elderly are not uh, covered adequately by mm. vaccines. Also, we've had oh, what, four or five waves of of, of COVID around the mm-hmm. world, so even people you know either they've been vaccinated or they've caught the disease or both, which has you know created a sort of wa- uh, a wall of uh, immunity. Um, however, China doesn't have that. It's it's you know it's it, what they call most a virgin population in terms of the virus, and that's going to be huge. So you got a huge aging population in China, mm. significant demographic issue that has not got herd immunity that the rest of the world has. So there's an element where the Chinese government is caught between a rock and a hard place in that it's made COVID a central, it's COVID management a central part of its legitimacy. And if it begins to spread, which with the newer variants of Omicron, which are just getting past stuff really quickly, yes. um, you're going to see a huge potential death toll. And that will significantly damage the legitimacy of the Chinese government, which has almost declared its its legitimacy and almost beating COVID, knowing how to manage COVID. Mm-hmm. So the World Cup you know, is on and... You know, football, soccer is massive in China and, you know, huge ratings and people are watching it and they're watching the crowds of people from all over the world. No masks. Yes. Everyone's getting along with it. And and that was causing huge frustration and anger. Yeah. The other thing um, I heard one commentator say that there's been a shift where, you know, you saw it here. We're, we're in an area which has a significant overseas Chinese population. And for a period, you saw that people were following the protocols back home. So even when restrictions would lift here around mm-hmm. masks and different things, you saw overseas uh, Chinese populations being a lot more cautious. Mm-hmm. Just near here is, is Box Hill, which is a very Chinese area, and you would drive through Box Hill and it, you know, it, it sort of felt in lockdown at times when the rest of our state wasn't in lockdown. And you saw similar things around the world in overseas Chinese populations. But uh, this person who is an overseas Chinese um, uh Writer, I think she lives in the UK, was saying how in the last few months it seems to have flipped. And I've noticed this Mm. um, where you're seeing overseas Chinese populations no longer sort of following what's happening in China. They're now sort of flipped to treating the virus. I mean, there's still caution there, but treating the virus like Western or, you know, rest of the world populations are. And then they're talking to their friends back in China, friends and family, and they're like, oh, we're just living with this now. It's it's, it's sort of not a big thing now. Um, So, this is causing a huge amount of, um, uh, I think, uh, disquiet in China. But again, it's it's about COVID. It's not about COVID. It's also about the fact that what China was promised, um, its social contract, where in a sense people were willing to give over a number of freedoms. Yeah, you know, freedom of expression, um, you know, uh, democracy, you know, the freedom to to contribute that that has, um, they're willing to do that if the economy kept growing. Mm-hmm. They're willing to do that if they could travel around the world. And we've seen tremendous Chinese movement around the world of Chinese citizens, overseas investment, yep. the Chinese economy is growing, the Chinese real estate market is growing. But what's happening is it's not just it's not just COVID, it's also the ageing population, it's also China's increasingly assertive uh, posture in the world has seen that we're now starting to see significant you know problems in in China, uh, in the economic realm. Their their centerpiece is a manufacturing hub of the world. Um, you know there's there's bad news. So for example, you know like Evergrande, um, the large Chinese construction company, you know is in serious economic trouble. So all of this is contributing to where the, the social contract that Xi Jinping has with the Chinese people, where he can pursue his what he calls China dream, this is starting to come under significant stress at this point in time. Um, so what you're seeing is this clash between ideology mm-hmm. and governance. Mm. And and I think this is really worth note. Now, this is the biggest protest since Tiananmen Square in I think 1989, yeah. um, we've seen, and already we're seeing significant pushback and this could be met with, with quite serious violence from the state. Um, but I think what we're seeing is that the situation in China is incredibly dynamic. Now, just to add one point after this very long answer, Mm -hmm. um, the uh, other thing is that we as the world are very tied to China. Um, just the news today, as we record, that China may possibly because f- the one thing interestingly, China didn't do what other countries did, which was a, a massive vaccination program. Yeah, they knew that because there's suspicion in China. There's been a number of issues, even stuff around like baby formula, different medicines that are made in China, where if if you if you Again, go to Box Hill near here, you would, you would see for years these export businesses where people would buy medicine and things like baby formula here in Australia and send it to China because there were a number of scandals in China over um, poorly made products and like babies died and stuff like that. So there's a significant skepticism in the population over the Chinese made vaccines. Mm-hmm. So they, they know to do a mass vaccination program done in Europe or done like particularly here in Australia, that they probably don't have the ability to do that. So the news today just floated. It was what it wasn't even an announcement. There was sort of some hinting that that could happen in some of the Chinese government papers. Has seen the stock market go up. So it's almost like it's almost like the stock market is watching China. And the slightest news, like there was this news, like maybe after the party congress they might open up. Obviously, they're not doing that. Um, the stock market goes up, and then there's bad news, protests. Yesterday the stock market goes down. Why is this? Because the world, countries which produce resources, are so connected. You know, import export to China's future. Mm. If the Chinese economy implodes, that's going to have massive implications for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Chinese story is incredibly dynamic. And and I'll pause there if you've got any questions because I just said a lot. <laughs> I
2: know um, like a tiny bit of the reading I've done, people were like potentially comparing this to Tiananmen Square. Mm. Um, is that a fair kind of link to make or is it um, different times, different circumstances?
1: The, the, the context of Tiananmen Square was very much in the global collapse of communism that we were seeing. Mm. And, um, you know, you saw the Berlin Wall fall, you saw all these Eastern European countries, you know, you saw the Soviet Union break up into independent states and go back to sort of, you know, many of the previous countries that they wore. So you felt there was – I remember at the time there was this sense that that was what was going to happen. This was just yeah. a natural thing. There was this in, – in Tiananmen Square, which is, you know, the centre, it's a, it's a hugely symbolic part of China, almost the central centre organ of the entire massive country. Um, you know, they built this um, sort of – I think it was sort of the goddess of freedom, almost like the Statue of Liberty. Mm. Um, I think Gorbachev visited, you know, uh, – And then it was going on for a while and like CNN were there and stuff like this. And then there was just one night where there was just this incredible crackdown. Um, At that point, China, you know, it's interesting. So there's some to this day, not everyone knows exactly what happened. You know, there's French Mm. intelligence um, have written reports that they actually saw fighting between Chinese units. Mm. So Mm. it could have been that China was on the verge of, um, um, you know, falling over like the Soviet Union. However, the party retained power and what you saw was China adapted uh, whereas eastern europe adopted the economic model and the political model of the west and eventually in lots of places particularly like russia that that political model was corrupted mm. ironically by some of the economic stuff and oligarchy but in china they adopted the economic economy but kept the leninist party structure so mm. the party mm. adapted so that's the difference mm. um so I think that these protests are still quite small and I think the, I think the re- reality is that the Chinese government has been preparing for this for years and years and years. Um, but again, to what this says is our world is still in flux. This is a grey zone dynamic where yeah. China has been fairly stable and seemingly since... You know, just after after Tiananmen Square, on a process of growth and engagement with the world and economic growth, and people sort of accepted, look, they're always going to remain communist. But what we're seeing now is some serious pressure, and I think instability um, uh, in in China. And you know, Xi has tried to shore up his power internally in the party and and done that as well. You know, in in the um, uh, society, uh, but it just shows that. The balance in the world between ideology and governance, what what we think the world should look like and how the world actually is, is a tension that we're seeing everywhere and we're seeing mm. that in China. Mm.
0: Well, I wonder uh, on that note if it's uh, worth moving to the World Cup and how are you seeing that kind of play out in, in that context?
1: Yes. Well, you know, I'm a long-term World Cup watcher um, and it's interesting that, you know, uh, the emphasis is, you know, always very much on um, uh, the football, but there's always a political dynamic. Yeah, um, I think in, I think it was 1978. The Duff probably the one of the world's best footballers at the time, Johan Cruyff, the Dutch player, refused to play in the I think it was the World Cup in Argentina because of the military junta that was in power there. But you know, football in the world is, is truly the world game and FIFA, which is the Football Federation of the world, is interesting in the sense it's like the United Nations but it doesn't have a security council. Everyone, Every country mm. gets a vote. So it truly is this sort of international organisation. Uh, obviously, there's issues around corruption and so on but that also is very <laughs> reflective of the world and the reality of corruption in the world. Mm. Um, but what's been really interesting about this World Cup is you've seen in the West you know, a growing appetite for activism. Mm-hmm. You know, you've seen that in all kinds of sporting bodies from, you know, the NBA to, you know, our local uh, football expression, the AFL, all around the world, issues around that activist um, sentiment which has grown in the world. And so you have this World Cup in Qatar, which again too was, was done a number of years ago, this deal, and you had two World Cups um, uh, uh Basically, uh, what's the word? One mm. uh, in the bidding process. So one was Russia, which was the last World Cup. Yeah. And um, and then this World Cup in Qatar. Just a note too, I watched on the plane flying back for 22 hours on you know, through <laughs> Qatar. Um, I watched a video. It was the movie, FIFA's movie of the Russian World Cup. And 2018, Yeah, four years ago, 2018. And what is stunning is it just feels like another century. Hmm. Hmm. You know, just these images of, like, people travelling through Russia and, like, Putin shaking hands with all these world leaders (laughs) and, like, Russia. You know, was this real high point for Russia in terms of sort of engagement with the world and, and just these images of, like, Brazilians and, you know, driving through the countryside, you know, in Russia and being greeted and British people walking down the street and shaking hands with Russians and so on. And it just felt like this world which has passed, you know, just before COVID, you know, just sort of 18 months before COVID, you know, obviously Russia was in, in in Crimea, but you know, you think of how much the world has changed in four years. It, mm. It's actually I was stunned watching that movie. Mm. Um, so yeah, this process where they were given there was geopolitical stuff happening there. Then like we now know that Russian intelligence was also involved in in you know, the getting off the the bid, you know, and very much Qatar's role in in geopolitics and in, in the Gulf region was also very much this this was a thing for them to influence the world. Mm. So then everyone sort of turned a blind eye and and particularly, you know, issues around worker safety was huge and the amount of people mm-hmm. who died. Then and that also happened in Russia. Mm. I mean we now know there were North Koreans that came and effectively worked as slave laborers in Russia to build some of those stadiums. But the activist sentiment wasn't as strong then and it's just grown stronger. Yes. And um, so then you have the World Cup in, in in Qatar and, you know, you have the European nations coming in and with that mentality of, oh, well, this is just normal now in our football mm. leagues. We you know, talk about homophobia or racism or whatever. And then they come into Qatar and what's interesting is, uh, you know, Qatar is a Muslim country in the Middle East and there's this complete clash of values. Yes. And, and there's almost this sense that the sort of activism thing works say in Europe where it might be, well, we're going to shame you by bringing up these things and if you don't align with this, this, this activist program, yes. um, you'll be shamed. But it, it doesn't work necessarily in Qatar because, no. because them saying no to some of these campaigns actually gains the merit in their region. So they're then seen as the Islamic country that's standing up to these Western values of decadence is yes. how it's seen. So that thing of like, you're being shamed, they're like, they don't, they, I don't actually care. The other fascinating thing is, so for example, you had the German national football team. So there was this controversy where they wanted to wear this one love sort of rainbow activist, uh, you know, sort of, it was, a, it was a campaign and like England was going to wear it and some other European countries, Germany, FIFA banned it. Um, and uh, said basically if they wear it, they'll get yellow cards. So you'd be forfeit the ta- – you know, you'd get, if you get two yellow cards, you're sort of out. So anyway, yes, they decided okay. not to do that. Um, but what's just – and Germany for their team photo before the game put their hands across their mouth and it was this symbol of, you know, we're being – we can't speak, you know, so it's is this yes, protest. yes. But then what's interesting, there's a really interesting article in The Times basically saying like it was like look past all the virtue signalling. There's just all these massive deals being done behind the scenes in Qatar. Hmm. You know, Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, was there. You know, Ivanka. Uh, what's what's Trump's daughter, Ivanka? Ivana? If, what's, what's Jared Kushner's wife? It is... Uh- <laughs> Ivanka, Ivanka, Mm. you know she's there. You know they're not like Kushner; they're not just there because they want to watch a game. Like Mm. there's so much wheeling and dealing going on behind it, and massive, you know, arms deals, energy deals, diplomatic deals. It's all happening because you just think everyone's in, like the world's in a chaotic place. Everyone's in Qatar. Yes, Doha's not big. You can you can rub shoulders with everyone. So like it's it's just you know I find this you know staggering. So Germany, all this protest, and then behind the scenes, what's just what news just breaks two days after Germany does their protest against Qatar, Germany signs a massive liquid natural gas deal for 15 years with Qatar. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, because Germany, again, too, this is ideology versus governance. Yes. That Germany has the ideological thing that's pushing the, these, these points, that it has a view around what the world should look like, like much of the West. But then what, is, is it willing to then go, well, we're go- we believe in this so much that we're going to, live through multiple winters of no gas. And the solution to the fact that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was blown up, which I think we talked about last time, uh, is you've got to get literal nat- liquid natural gas from somewhere. Yes. Like you can get it from Australia, but it's very far away compared to Qatar and the US. So this is another time where governance, what we're going to see over the next few years is governance is going to start to win out against ideology. Mm. So just just one more point on on the World Cup is I think what we're seeing as well, like um, I think what you'll see is you'll start to see. So the next World Cup is in USA, Canada and Mexico, I think. And what you'll start to see, you know, you, you saw at this World Cup there were, there were people from the Middle East who had their own armbands and their Palestine armbands. Mm-hmm. And so they're going up to like Western things and there was a whole video of like, you know, Arabs and, and Middle Easterners refusing to talk to Western media things and talk about Palestine. So you're actually going to see this activism go in two ways. And really what that is is for something like the global society that we've lived in. For the last 30 years, there's an element that's all worked because we had to pull ideology back. But then because ideology and activism is so at the forefront, um, that means that it means that projects like FIFA, it might be more difficult. Final point, um, Russia <laughs> is part of the European Confederation of Football. So mm-hmm. there's FIFA, which is the World Confederation. And then under that, there's all these regional uh, really continental ones. UEFA is the European one. Russia it was banned after the invasion of Ukraine, and they can't play internationals. They can't play um, uh, club games in Europe. And Russia just announced they may move to the Asian Football Federation. And to me, that's just another sign of the world breaking up into regions yeah. and regions around you know more similar values or regions you know where you're seeing this real split, where some of the activism in the West. Is actually being seen as colonialization outside of the West. Yes. And this is where the common language that you spoke is almost like you had to agree to have an international football federation. We're just not going to talk about certain things. We want to talk about those things now. But what that means is the project of a sort of global society becomes more difficult, and projects like FIFA become more difficult. So another sign tension between ideology and governance, which means that you often then end up in de globalization.
0: Yeah, fascinating. I also had the um, the thought as uh, a couple of points back when you were talking about uh, ideology um, giving way to governance. It kind of uh, parallels that conversation that we've had a couple of times a number of episodes ago where we're talking about your belief system, yes, the beliefs that you have, until they're tested and they're embodied and you can mm. live them out, mm. they don't actually mean much. Yes, yes, yeah. Yes. And it and it feels like that's kind of in a in a more global scale being challenged.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. So it's it's like a lot of the because we've lived in this age of the image, yes. we've lived in a very online world, the world of marketing, the world of Hollywood. It's 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 all very cerebral cerebral and 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 disconnected from reality in mm. some ways and I think you're right so what we're seeing is the crashing between that and the real world like I saw I saw someone say recently like just as older people struggled with the world of computers younger people are now struggling with the world of reality yeah mm-hmm. oh my really gosh so true and so you know I, I think this is true that there's this clash between these two visions of the world going on mm. I mean one of the example of this is you know what you're seeing in the U.S. in certain cities, um, you know, like in California where, you know, I had Peter Thiel make this point. I'm not a big Peter Thiel fan but I think this point was was an interesting one that because you've got these big tech companies in California, it brings in all this revenue to the state, yeah. like massive. And, and, you know, so California is um, I think would be have a bigger – if California was independent, it would have a bigger GDP than Germany. Um, so, you know, massively wealthy country but um, – governance problem, <laughs> so like, you know, San Francisco and, and Los Angeles and homelessness and public schools and public transportation and, you know, all these things are a fast strain between Los Angeles and San Francisco, you know, all mm-hmm. these things to do. Uh, you've got this incredible ideological power, which is sort of then interesting. Peter Thiel compared California. This is a fascinating comparison. He said, just as Saudi Arabia is able to have this sort of Wahhabist Islamic doctrine that it exports is because the only reason they can really do that with force is because they've got this massive petro thing. He said, California's like that, but its tech is the oil. And it's sort of like, he said, its woke ideology is its Wahhabism. <laughs> um, and I thought that's really interesting that, but it is a clash between hang on, we've got this very progressive, idealized view that's going to take us to utopia, yet. I don't want to ride the bus because it's dangerous. Yeah, sort of thing going on. So you're seeing that contrast in a lot of in in the US between again, this is another tension between ideology and governance.
0: Yeah. Well, um, let us. Well, you've you've kind of already moved to America. So, um, Elon Musk and Twitter.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Boom. Boom. Billionaire troll. Yeah. 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 Billionaire Troll. Um, <laughs> so fascinating. So, I mean, just, just to give people a quick update, I think most of our listeners would probably be okay with this. But, you know, Elon Musk did a sort of hostile takeover, you could call it, on Twitter. Mm. Um, and what's interesting is often that happens. You know, you think about uh, Oliver Stone's movie Wall Street where you had um, uh, Michael Douglas played um, Gordon Gecko. Who's a uh, sort of Wall Street raider who does these hostile takeovers of companies? You know, and very much he's in that movie. He's sort of portraying almost this amoralistic. I'm just doing this for the money. Mm. Um, but it's just thing with Musk. There's there's an element that this is a hostile takeover, but it's almost being sort of portrayed in ideological terms as well. That this is this pushback against. Um, sort of censorship and the way that certain sort of elites that tend to be more progressive are controlling social media and then controlling the means of communication and then controlling the narrative. And so, you know, he's taking over, but then there's this pushback against the elites. So, you've got this fascinating on Twitter where you had blue checks, which are your sort of people who if you were sort of like this is an authentic uh, verified. Celebrity. Verified. Yeah. Um, and he sort of talked about it, almost created this sort of feudal system on Twitter. <laughs> you know, he got rid of that. Or he made actually anyone could have it for $8 a month or something, which is actually mm. a smart money-making thing. But then you'll see someone with a blue tick and you're like, even mom's I'm still getting used to this fact. Yes, like, yeah. I saw something, a tweet, and I was like, who is this person? They're famous and i got got 100 followers. They're just yeah. paying for their like $8. And there's now like celebrities are refusing to get it and the people are talking they're going to get off. And, and, and again, what this... This says a few things. So so number one, it talks about the role of oligarchs. Mm. And and again, to I come back to the fact, I've heard a, I heard a Russian commentator say this, why are wealthy people who control industries and media and have a lot of political influence in Russia called oligarchs, yet in America or Britain or Europe they're called entrepreneurs? Really right. interesting. Correct question. Uh, so, you know, Jeff Bezos, one of the most powerful people in the world, tremendous economic power but therefore democratic, power, just political power, mm. you know, he, he bought the Washington Post, one of America's most sort of venerable papers. And, you know, the New York Times is run by, I think it's Color Slim, the Mexican um, magnate. Uh, and so you've got, you know, Elon Musk, who's a, who's a magnate, you know, huge car, Neuralink entrepreneur. If he's in Russia, we'd call him an oligarch. Mm. Um, you know, takes over this means of production. So it raises the question, what does it mean when, these extremely rich individuals have this incredible power to take over not just content but the means of distribution of content. Yes, has a huge implication not just for democracy at a local level, and you know we've seen that in our country with figures like Rupert Murdoch. Um, but what does that mean at a global level? So Musk takes over Twitter, but again, too, what this is illustrating is you know and he calls himself a free speech extremist, and you've got some people saying I'm going to leave Twitter now. other people saying oh it's getting better. There's things aren't being repressed, but again, too. We come back to the tension between ideology and governance yep. because you know before on Twitter you had an ideological thing that um, you know this certain viewpoints maybe hate speech or whatever so governance needed to be done well. Mm-hmm. Musk comes in his vision and his, his ideology is one of free speech, which is an oppositional point to that. Uh, and but then the question is how is he going to uh, do this? I saw someone a tweet went viral today of a guy who was calling for. Um, Pretty much the destruction of ethnic minorities. And wow. what, what does that look like in a in a free speech zone? At some point, Musk is going to have to do governance as well. Yeah. So no matter who you are, no matter if you're on the left or right, progressive, conservative, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, again, this tension between the world we have, the world we want, and the play, interplay between those two things is there. So one other interesting point is I think also that. What you're seeing too in the must thing, you could actually almost bring back to our civilizational decline
0: sure. thing. yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. in that 75% of the workers of Twitter quit mm-hmm. effectively and Twitter is still going. So people are like, oh, 75% have quit. It's not going to be here on Monday. And you could make an interesting point that almost what he's done is that he's almost looked at that, if you look at that civilizational thing that Twitter began with, you know, and a lot of these big tech companies began with pioneers. Yes. These hackers who just were like staying up all night and living on coffee and these sort of, you know, hyper smart nerds who created this thing, gets money, gets billions of dollars and all of a sudden you start getting the huge HR departments and and diversity departments and marketing departments and all this stuff. He just sacked all of them. And it's now just being run apparently by just a group of these sort of like hacker mates and, you know, like they're sort of <laughs> getting rid of people. But almost what he's trying to do is actually take it back to that pioneering stage and almost that early Silicon Valley yeah, stage, okay. which is really interesting because um, that's going to upend the model that we've seen around the world of a massive sort of like, I call them a Mandarin class. In China you had this giant class which ran everything Um and they were educated in Confucian ethics, and we've almost had that. We've had these giant, mark, like HR sort of classes, which increasingly became diversity inclusion classes, which are in companies, and they're not just helping the company run or the organisation run. They're also introducing an ethic, mm-hmm. and that ethic, um, uh, you know, is, is become huge. But. Almost what Musk is doing is getting rid of that and going almost back to a pioneering stage because he's—he's—I he, think almost his argument would be that that bloated thing is it's p- taking these companies off their original founding principle, um, and so you're seeing this. You know, and Catherine Lou wrote about this. She called it the PMC, the professional management class. Um, and what's interesting is the professional management class that has emerged all across the world, from local government to corporations to everything. Most of them were raised almost, it's almost that Obama generation, yes, we can, very optimistic view of the world, that if we do the right policies, if we have this, this focus, which is inclusive, that then the world become, would become better. Mm. They ne- necessarily have been equipped to govern. How to deal with significant structural issues in the world. They may talk about structural inequality, but how do you actually run structural issues when you've got an energy crisis and your company's going to go broke? Yes. Your HR department is going to struggle with that. They're probably just going to be laying off people and your sort of attempts to be you know, more inclusive and warm and cuddly when you're sacking 10,000 workers, you're not going to look cuddly, I'm sorry. So again, <laughs> too, tension between ideology and governance in the background.
0: All right. Well, um, let's continue on the the tech uh, train. Unless you had yeah. something you wanted to say. No, on no. Elon I'm, I'm Musk thoroughly enjoying <laughs> Mark's country. <here. laughs> um, FTX. Now, I recognise I know pretty much zero about this, so I'm looking forward to hearing more.
1: Well, I, I will be leaning slightly on Daniel's crypto knowledge here as the crypto baron of this team. <laughs> And the funder of um, my car. <laughs> and I would just like to say that uh, if you're looking for a fantastic crypto exchange, please go to danielsexchange.com. <laughs> um, I use it. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, if um, that domain I've, is
2: bought by next week, <laughs> I'll be stoked. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, okay, so uh, I, I will. I probably know more of the political, cultural dimensions, mm. um, but um, please fill in my uh Gaps in knowledge here, Daniel, because you know more about crypto than me. But effectively, uh, quick run through. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the concept of Bitcoin changed how people view money and there was a technological concept around blockchain and a decentralised currency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a you know mysterious, um, what's his name? Satoshi? Yeah, Satoshi Nakamoto. This mysterious individual who may be real, may not be real, who invented this idea and is mysteriously... No one knows who he is, yep. and really, this was an invention, but also it was a challenge to the monetary system of the world. Mm-hmm. After the, the Great Depression and various economic upheavals, um, you know, f- fluctuations in, in in the price of money, um, you know, people realized how destabilizing they could be. In Germany, the classic story in the nineteen thirties of hyperinflation mm-hmm. was seen as a, something which predicated the rise of fascism. Yeah. So governments, you know, had these things: the central Banks in the US it's the Fed, Bank of England, it's a Reserve Bank in Australia and so on. Uh, these entities, uh, in a sense, control interest rates and control the monetary flow. Traditionally, they've been separate from governments uh, and much disliked by the ideological uh, grouping who we call libertarians who yep. believe in you shouldn't have these institutions and, and government regulations stop. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, at the moment you see this tension where you've got the US Fed is tackling inflation, mm-hmm. uh, which it sees as its job. And Jerome Powell and and Janet Yellen, all these people, they make these decisions and then that affects other central banks around the world. If Mm -hmm. they raise interest rates, it means the Bank of England raises interest rates. It means the Bank of Japan. All this sort of stuff follows on. And, um, you know, this is not liked by some people ideologically. So this was the idea of what if there was a decentralized currency? Um, that actually wasn't held anywhere but was held in sort of almost like a networked concept. Um, Daniel's nodding. That's good. I'm, I'm going <laughs> <laughs> um, This then spawned other imitators, um, other forms of cryptocurrency mm-hmm. and there's different technologies around this, Ethereum and all these different things. I'm not going to go too much into that but essentially the idea is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, is nodding still. i just keep talking while Daniel's nodding. Yeah. Um, but then uh, uh, people began to realise and um, – his name is Sam Bankman Freed. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, which you couldn't make up that name, Bankman. I um, mean, it's just fantastic. Um, I think he he's sort of the guy, the the CEO, founder, president, whatever of FTX. And uh, I think he was like a physics guy or something like that. He decided to do this. Um, interestingly, little detail. His father, I think. But his parents are academics. His father, I think, like, did his PhD on how cryptocurrencies can avoid taxation or something crazy like this. <laughs> and his mother uh, basically was on how new forms of money can fund democratic progressive causes or something like interesting. What? Yeah, so, so um, he, he, he discovers that by trading Bitcoin in different countries, you can make money. That's my central understanding of it, that this was like a currency exchange. Okay. Um, I'm waiting for Daniel to nod. <laughs> so uh, the, the FTX was a cryptocurrency exchange. Mm.
2: So you could sign up and I'll pay $1,000 off my credit card and buy one Ethereum or something and then trade that. But then Alameda Research was kind of the sister company. Yes. Yeah, so there was two companies, yeah, yes. Yeah, and that was doing the what you were talking about okay. there, the um,
1: exchange. So in, in a sense, would it be right to say you're at the airport and you see that foreign currency exchange and you hand your pounds and get, I don't know, Australian dollars. Similar concept but with crypto in different countries. Is that correct?
2: The Alameda? Yes. Um, No, uh, probably a bit. it'd be like doing that but you're like standing there the whole time trading between Japanese yen and American dollars as the price is going up and down and you're trying to make money quickly. uh, Uh, As
1: in in currency fluctuations. But that
2: was using kind of FTX Yes. Or towards the end using FTX money to fund that. Yes. Um, so other people's money to to make that happen. Yeah
1: now the other the other dynamic part of this story is um, that the people at FTX and Almeida um, were adherents of a sort of subset of a universe of thought. You could put libertarianism in there, you could put rationalism in there, mm-hmm. um, and rationalism in this idea that we should be more rational, like less driven by emotions, that yeah. um, you know, uh, and that you should therefore, operate and and put your money not where your empathy or your emotions go but in something which is proven i think this comes from the australian philosopher peter singer ethicist um that you should put your money where it's proven rationally to be most effective right so instead of like i'm going to give to that thing because i love the you know the cute kids who are seeming poor i'm going to put it in this i don't know thing over here because that's actually what is demonstrably a better place to put it Mm -hmm. and then what this did was it sort of said to people, this movement was like, don't go and, you know, pick poor kids up out of the gutter in that city over there and work for $30,000. No, you need to make as much money as possible to put it towards these effective altruistic things. Right, okay. So it's very much rationalist, um, again, to sort of in the Silicon Valley ether of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a whole movement, the rationalist movement um, and – uh There's all stuff that goes with this and as part of the story, one of the things too is like even getting beyond the classic sort of romantic bonds and just entering into these polyamorous polycules, these relationships of multi-people together and all this sort of stuff. It's not just a financial thing. It's not just an ethical thing. There's a whole sort of subculture here. So effectively what happens is, you know, the whole thing begins to implode and there's significant corruption Mm -hmm. is what it looks like behind it. Mm -hmm. They're based in the Bahamas. There's so many details to this story. We could do an entire podcast on Mm -hmm. it, you know, like um, uh, the thing goes under and effectively what it shows and a lot of actual proper banks had relationships with them. But all of a sudden what looked like this sort of genius, incredible new movement to change the world and at the forefront of crypto just looks like, uh, you know, a significant Ponzi scheme, Mm, you know, and and then it's revealed like, you know, these two companies – uh, Almeida and FTX, you know, it's all really young. Like these guys are like young. Yeah, he's 30. 30 and you know, a lot are in yeah. their twenties and like one like Almeida's run by his girlfriend or this yeah, member yeah, of this yeah. this this polyamorous group. They all live in one group setting. It's like a commune. But in the most expensive apartment in yeah, in, right. in the Bahamas, yeah, suite in Bahamas um, you know, and and yeah, so it's and he was someone who was lauded, yeah. You know, and there's even sort of you know, like he was the second biggest contributor to the Democratic Party, um, okay. you know, and almost like a lot of the campaigning we saw in in the midterms was actually funded by what they were doing. So heaps of murkiness in the midst of this. Um, but I think it's really interesting. And, and then he, they were also blogging, like she was doing Tumblr blogs and mm. he was doing stuff. And you could almost see this like intellectual corruption <laughs> of them, you know, where he sort of just comes out and goes, oh, look, ethics is just this thing for Western white, white people like us. And, you know, it's <laughs> oh, just wow. like, yeah. So you pull back the curtain of this incredibly lauded young Entrepreneur, you know philanthropists, and it's just straight up moral and economic corruption. Mm-hmm. They're all like off; they're like just absolutely eating uh, amphetamines for breakfast. And you know, there's like clips now of him, like I don't know if he's on the BBC, and he's just like rocking in his chair because he's just off his rocker. Um, but just again, a classic example of ideology. This ideology, this this vision of the future. Crashing into reality, the yes. <laughs> confines of of corruption and how these things work—you know—an incredibly embarrassing moment, really. Uh, but again, this sign that these—I think—I think we're seeing this shift. So this is where it sort of goes into. It. So the point, big point, I'm making as I begin to, to tie all these threads together is. In the battle between ideology and I'm calling it governance, which is like how we want the world to be and how do we actually work with the world as it exactly exists, Mm. we're seeing, I think, the beginnings of one of the grey zone dynamics that we're going to see which could define the next period is a growth in nihilism. Mm. you got the Obama, yes, we can generation, and that was a campaign which unlike, you saw that poster everywhere. That, that, That was a... And I don't. Even, I didn't even want to make this just about the Democratic Party or American politics. There was something where that went beyond into this meta sense that, particularly for I think, you know, a generation rising up, that there was change possible in the world. Yeah. And um, that sort of 2010s sense of excitement. I don't think we've thought. I don't think we've really understood the 2010s enough. Like it takes you a couple decades away, but there was this. This rise of self-esteem, this rise of can-do-ness, you know, tech optimism, economic optimism, political optimism in the world, activism, and I think that that now is starting to run aground. And, um, you know, uh, I think that's going to define part of the next period of where we're going, this sense of uh, uh, nihilism, a sense that, hang on, the world is is actually a sort of sad and depressing place, mm-hmm. Um you know, I think it's going to be sort of the mood that we start to see grow more and more in the world.
0: I wonder then as we, um, as we wind up on that note, what's the encouragement to, to our listeners as we kind of look across the world, grapple with these issues but then look to Jesus?
1: <clears throat> I, I had this um, sense. You know, I mentioned I've, I've travelled overseas and, and and I was at um, the, of <coughs> me, life of Prayer Conference 24-7 Prayer International mm-hmm. Conference in Belfast and what really struck me in talking to lots of people is occasionally when you go to that stuff you might have a country that's in crisis yeah. um, and in talking to people, <coughs> sorry, my water went down the wrong way, um, in talking to people, there is this global crisis and then it's manifesting in each country in a particular way. Mm. I think we see that with our listeners. And um, I didn't meet anyone who's like, oh, how's life in your country? Oh, it's great. We're <laughs> loving life. The future looks rosy. Um, and it was really, really interesting. Um, you know, I I flew to Europe and the morning I flew, there was these reports saying that, you know, there was there was rumours that intelligence agencies were saying, that Putin could detonate a tactical nuke over the Black Sea as a, you know, show of force in in the war in Ukraine. Mm. So I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm flying to Europe. And, and Trudy, my wife was like, you know, do we go over the Black Sea? I'm like, nah, no, we don't go over the Black Sea. And so I'm watching, you know, you're <laughs> flying and goodness, and you're up there for an entire day almost in the plane and, you know, you're flying, we're heading, heading out of the Middle East towards Europe and, you know, I'm watching the flight tracker. You get a little map on the back of the scene in front of you. And I was like, oh, my goodness, we're, head- we're heading towards the Black Sea. <laughs> you know, and I'm like watching it. It takes like about an hour and a half to fly over the Black Sea. And you're like, oh, my goodness, this is crazy. You know, got past the Black Sea. Obviously, Putin didn't, ta- you know, detonate a tactical nuke. And so getting getting on the ground, you know, arriving in England and you know there's political chaos and and people asking, you know, what's going on, and you know getting to Northern Ireland, which has had political chaos for a long time, mm. and you know they're looking in England like, oh wow, you've become like us, not the other way around, and you know, at the conference talking to people, and and we're and we're in worship and and you know praying and, and people are worshiping and crying out to God, and I just had this sense, I thought of the book Intercessor by Resales. And in that book, really inspiring book, and, you know, it talks about this Welsh man um, sort of the sort of tail end perhaps that lived through the, the Welsh revival and just his, his, I would call it, bold intercession. Yeah. He, during World War II, was engaged, you know, he's just this guy living upstairs somewhere in Wales, very little social standing, uh, you know, compared to the powerful people of the world. But he was engaged in almost this spiritual warfare. he saw what was happening with Hitler and he's praying against that and praying into this thing and you know operating in the you know the spiritual you know um, to affect these earthly realities. And so I was thinking about that and I'll sit there and I think I'm in Europe, Europe seems into pressure going into this winter of energy crisis and war and economic problems in the world. And this, this little question popped into my head like why do I look back? At a Reese house and go, wow, that's amazing. You know, he prayed for Dunkirk, you know, and, mm. and you made the stories of so the miracle of Dunkirk when they're evacuating the troops off the beach at Dunkirk. And, and you know, he prayed and Britain prayed and, and you know, it felt like it was that was a turning point in the war. And yeah. you know, I've heard Pete Greg talk about that very eloquently. And you know, I thought, why do I look back at those stories? And I thought, what what if we're at those moments now? Mm. You know, and 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 I, and I thought like, Ah, oh, this this feels uncomfortable to talk like this. This feels weird, but there is intelligence reports I'd read a few days that that Putin could detonate a tactical nuke in Europe. Why don't I pray like Reese House? Yeah. So I had this thing. I thought you know it's in the middle of worship and some people offering some different words, and I'm like, um, why don't I get us to pray about this <laughs> this conference? And like I'm not speaking like I got you know <laughs> they know me and stuff like this stuff for a word, but but. I was like, I'm going to stand here for a minute and just think about whether this is the right thing to do. Because this is a bit crazy. Like, can we pray against the threat of a tactical nuke? And can we pray for peace in Europe and (laughs) be that bold like Reese Howells was? And I closed my eyes. I thought, I'm just going to sit and think about this for a minute. I sort of opened my eyes and almost I was. Without even realizing, I was halfway down the front. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it was like my body was moving me forward. You know, and and I and I, I, I said, look, I, I just I shared with two people down the front the word who were leading, and 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 you know I went onto stage, you know, and again, too, I'm not, a, I'm a reserved person, and it's not my comfort spot, and um, you know, I just got the entire. I said, what, what if we? I said, I shared exactly what I'm sharing now, and I said, what mm. if this drove us to fervent Prayer, and what if you know we've seen people in places like Brazil and Korea crying out in prayer, and you know a lot of people have noted how that's often linked to renewal and and mm. revival, and and you know I said what if we did that, and I said what if in your language you cried out peace and we cried out to God, and it was this incredible moment of people praying, and you know there was there hasn't been a tactical nuke. I'm not going to say that you know I'm not going to go out and say oh that's this because of this, but I also want to believe in, and, I, and I think as we see the world in in so much change mm. that in the midst of grey zone where we feel out of control, maybe that's actually the point where we we don't just look back to the resales of the past and celebrate those stories. What if at this moment he's raising resales to pray? Uh, what if he's calling us to deeper, deeper, mm. more engaged, bold? bold prayers, mm. a bolder spiritual life, not just the spiritual life. You know, I've talked about before, I think there's such a danger at the moment. We love, we've just finished a thing we're doing called Patterns here at mm. Red, which is fantastic. It's been really successful, helping people integrate spiritual practice in their lives. So, so important. But if that's all we do, we're just controlling our, our personal words. Now, we don't have a spirit of control over the world, but what we do have is an invitation to pray. Yes. And I think let, let's do the patterns which are going to reform us individually, but let's also pray bold prayers for the kingdom of God to come on earth in power. And let's let's believe that that prayer can stop war, mm. that that prayer can stop economic carnage, that prayer can stop. I mean, l- let's just call this out. Like I'm just going to sound old school here, but... There is significant corruption in the world. The FTX thing is just like—I mean, this is like fall of Rome, French aristocracy before the revolution. Levels mm. of of like decadence. It's it's ethical. It's it's moral. It's economic. Um, you know what? What better time to to cry and pray than in a moment like this? I also just felt. I also pray. I also at the at the, um, uh, at the conference. Felt that again, and I got up and felt this prayer to pray for China. You know, I just have this sense that the Chinese church fully unleashed in the world is just—it could be such an incredible force. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like partially what we're seeing in China, I can explain it as I just did. I can explain all the political, geopolitical, historical stuff, um, but also I just think that the enemy, the powers of principalities, wants to crush the the Chinese people and wants to crush the Chinese church. And you know, I, 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 I long for the day to see the Chinese people fully released mm. into their destiny and gifting in God and the Chinese church to have the global impact it always has a already has a significant global impact but just would love to see that so let's 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 it's great that we get to chat about this stuff on here but let's also um uh you know pray for these nations when you watch the World Cup and no 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 it's Costa Rica or something pray for Costa Rica mm. you know let, let's let's pray let's boldly pray. Uh, people, as the tensions between ideology and governance show that the world is not controllable, we follow a God who is in control.
0: Yes. We're like an army on our knees, right? Amen. Yeah. Marching on our knees. Mm-hmm. Well, it's um, it's great to be back. Thank you, Mark, for all of that. Um, Yes, yeah, super encouraging at the end as well. We look forward to chatting with you again. Mm.